You've incorporated us in this mission, but the question is, are we doing it? Are we engaged? Are we involved in it? Lord, I pray that you would show us the way forward in fulfilling this, in pursuing discipleship, making disciples together as a church. Would you help me even as I speak here this morning? Would you open all of our eyes, open all of our hearts, and move us, God, to obey the things that you reveal in love for you and love for others. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, so let me be clear here straight away about one thing. Um, I just read these words, uh, quite famous words. Uh, many of you may be familiar, if you have a background in church, with these words, commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Um, but I'm not going to go through these words kind of bit by bit, verse by verse, like I typically do on Sundays. Uh, instead, what I'm actually going to do here, I just want this text to set up the broader issue that I'm going to be concerned with for these next three weeks or so, namely the issue, you could probably tell from my prayers, the issue of discipleship. The issue of discipleship. Um, when we open our New Testaments and we read, one of the things that should immediately come uh, clear to us is that those who take on the name of Christ, those who would call themselves Christians, uh, are at least in biblical terms referred to as Christ's disciples. So these 11 who had been following and learning from Jesus for um, these three years or so of his public ministry are here in verse 16 of Matthew 28, referred to as the 11 disciples. That's what a Christian is. That's what a follower of Jesus is called, a disciple. But as we read on in our New Testaments and we kind of move through the Gospels to the book of Acts and some of the epistles and things, one of the other things that becomes clear to us is that this idea of being a disciple of Jesus is not in any way a stagnant sort of reality, but rather an explosive one. There's some sort of out-thrusting, out-moving, ever-going uh, ever and replicating sort of momentum that's begun with this idea of discipleship. So in the text that we just read, these 11 disciples are not kind of up here on the mountain with Jesus, kind of allowed to kind of stop and just congratulate themselves on a, on a successful uh, discipleship to him. Okay, good job, well done. It, uh, you, you've, you've run the race, it's over. No, it's actually just kind of getting started, right? Instead, Jesus looks at them and says, okay, Go out now and make more. Go, therefore, and make disciples, verse 19. These 11, it would seem, are to unleash a disciple-making movement in the world. Not stopping at, okay, good, I'm, a, I'm an all right disciple. No, an, an all right, a good disciple makes more disciples. There's a momentum. Something is set off in the heart of these disciples that moves them out towards others, wanting to see more, come to know what they have, come to know themselves. And so we see that these 11 did just that, right? It's in view of their ministry that we read later in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The Word of God continued to increase and 
the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Their joy would only be complete not by being the select, the, the, kind of, the few, the proud, the eleven, but by seeing the number of disciples being multiplied greatly in all the earth. That more people start to follow along with them behind Savior and Lord and treasured Jesus. And it's carried on to this very day. It's why we're here gathered in this room this morning. Because of what took place there in Matthew 28. Disciples busy with the business of making more disciples. So here's the very heartbeat of the church of God. Here is both our identity and our purpose. Here's what we must be and what we must do. Let me say it again. Disciples of Jesus are to be busy making disciples of Jesus. Do I sound now like this is the twilight zone? You are now going to do whatever I say. You love Jesus and will make disciples. Okay, there we go. Um, Disciples of Jesus uh, will be busy making disciples of Jesus. Now, I read from uh, Jack Miller a few weeks ago uh, where he was talking about this great commission. And he says, essentially, listen, if we are not doing this, we are living out of accord with our whole reason for being in this world. Did you catch that? I mean, let me just go out on a limb here and say, uh, it's no wonder we feel so out of sorts, so empty, uh, so jaded, bitter, dissatisfied, discontent, if we're not actually living out this mission, this purpose, our reason for being, the reason we've been created, redeemed, and sent out in Christ. Here it is. If we're not living in light of that, if we're not moving out in view of that, it's no wonder we kind of feel like something's off in our lives. Like you perhaps contrast my life to, say, the Apostle Paul's, right? Like for him, like, well, for me, if I were to be thrown in jail, I would be upset about it and think that God had abandoned me. For him to be thrown in jail is a disciple-making opportunity. There's people here that need to hear. You see, he can't be let down. He can't be stopped. He can't be dissatisfied because he's living, uh, he's living in accord with what he was created and redeemed and sent out in Jesus to be and do. And so a lot of us, it's because we're, we're all frustrated and struggles. We're pursuing all these other things. We're busy, but not making disciples of Jesus, but doing something else. So let me ask you, even as we begin then, for your consideration, and I'll come back to this at the end of our time together here. Are you a disciple of Jesus, busy making disciples of Jesus? You, personally. Are, are you doing this? Is this where you're at? Uh, let me flesh out what this looks like a little bit more for you. Um, the front end of discipleship, we may or may, not, may or may not know, is in fact evangelism, right? Jesus says here in Matthew 28, go you know, into all the world, go to the nations and make disciples. Well, the front end of discipleship is simply evangelism. You can't make disciples if you don't first make converts, right? And so 
Again, let me ask you, are you going with the gospel to unbelievers? Are you starting conversations, asking good questions, listening to their stories, and engaging them meaningfully with the good news of Jesus? Is that, are you involved in that business? With that reason for being, are you walking in that? But of course, we know and we may often think more of discipleship along these terms for some reason. Um, uh, discipleship doesn't just stop with making converts, right? It's only gotten started. And so there's this other, other kind of phase to discipleship that involves, hey, those who follow Jesus. Now, what does it look like to grow up uh, in Jesus? What does it look like to journey after him and, and, and learn and grow and, 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 uh, and become more and more uh, like him? And so, let me ask you, are you helping other Christians in their journey towards Jesus? Are there people in your life that you are praying for, that you are wanting to see, that you are bringing Scripture to, or you're you're meeting up with to read, or you're wanting to see them grow, or is it kind of churches about people trying to do that for you? And why aren't they? Are you openly, honestly, meaningfully involved with others in pursuing Christ together with them? Or are you kind of going at this thing alone? Are you a disciple of Jesus, busy making disciples of Jesus? Because that's why you're here. Now, the next question to ask (coughs) is, if not, why not? Um, certainly I think regardless of what we all are, are or are not doing, there's room to improve and there, I mean, m- myself personally, I said, gosh, I'm going through these things. I'm going, Lord, help me. Make me a better disciple. <laughs> My goodness. But I do wonder, if not, why not? And while there are many reasons uh, for perhaps neglecting this call, uh, one of the things that I actually think may be one of the more significant reasons might be just simply the fact we kind of don't know how to do it. We don't know where to start. We don't know what it looks like. We don't even know exactly what being a disciple means. And so, gosh, I feel like I'm struggling as a disciple myself. I don't want to replicate that in others. I heard what Jesus said about the Pharisees. You go across the seas and you make the proselytes even worse sons of hell than yourself. And so I don't want to start making, you know, replicating my errors into other people. So I think Jesus, his cause is probably better off if I kind of sit on the sidelines. He's saying, no, 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 get in the game here. But I do think that a lot of times we hesitate or we struggle to engage in this mission because we, we don't understand what is involved in it. It feels too lofty for us. It feels too overwhelming. It feels too confusing. We don't know where to start. Now, in one sense, uh, when you look at our text, verses 18 to 20, uh, really he gives us all that we need. Okay, in, in one sense. He gives us all that we need. What does he say? Go into all the you know, nations and, and, and make disciples. And then he kind of says, what's involved? Baptize them into my name. Teach them all that I've commanded you. And don't worry, I'll be with you as you go. You go, okay, that's great. That sounds good. We can do that, I think. And then you start to go and you're like, wait, what? Flush that out a little more? Please, I, I, you know, I'm just a layman here. I, I don't know what's going on. I need some help. I think we can benefit from thinking about what it actually looks like to engage in that mission together. In fact, I would go so far as to say every Christian, <clears throat> and especially every church, 
should probably give themselves uh, significantly to thinking about how they are going to attempt to kind of fulfill this call to make disciples. What discipleship is going to look like uh, at a church or in their life. Uh, How are we going to approach it? What does it mean? What are some ways we can encourage it among our members and our congregation and beyond as we try to reach the city here for Jesus and the world? So, that's really what I'm hoping to do this morning. Um, now we're kind of getting to what I'm, what I'm after in particular. Um, I have wanted for quite some time to try to develop uh, something, a sort of framework vision that might help support uh, our and, and help encourage our pursuit of this mission here. And that's really what this uh, vision for DNA groups really is. Um, and I'm going to kind of try my best to really like put flesh on the bones uh, that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28, put, put color on the picture that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28. What exactly does it look like to be a disciple busy making disciples of Jesus? I want to try to help not just you, but me. I want to get a sense of what it looks like, and I want to call us into that uh, more profoundly. Now, um, one thing I want to be clear of here, even at the beginning, I, I'm not interested in providing a sort of one-stop shop for discipleship. That's not what I am going to be unveiling here. It's not going to be, hey, listen, this is the one way to go about making disciples. If you don't do this, you're a heretic or whatever it may be. No, there are lots of ways. I just simply realized I got to give us something. Like to not do anything is to do something. And I realize there are a lot that get confused. I don't even know. I would love to meet with people. I don't know even where to begin. And so I put a lot of time trying to think, what can I do to help encourage? But again, let me say it. It is not the only way. It is not the, the one way to make disciples or that sort of thing. I know that a lot of you are already busy doing this very thing we see in Matthew 28. I know a lot of you are already engaged in people's lives, both believers and unbelievers, and journeying with them towards Jesus, helping them along. I know that's already happening. My goal is not to strong arm you into some new way of doing it, but maybe to provide some support. My goal really is to get at those people who feel confused and to say, okay, hey, listen, here's here's an orienting vision and a supporting structure to help you along as you try to, to make disciples for Jesus. That's what I want to do. Another way we could put it um, is like this. At Mercy Hill, I'm not interested in developing a program. DNA groups are not going to be a program for discipleship, like some book that we read or a curriculum that we go through or whatever. My goal is not to develop some program that you go through and then you're done. Oh, we're, we're disciples. We did it. My goal is to try to develop a culture, a way of life among us. Okay, my goal is to try to support and engage us so that we can actually develop a culture of discipleship so that whatever we're doing, whether we're getting here early to set up on Sunday mornings, whether we're eating dinner with our our kids, whether we're out and about and we're thinking about making disciples, we're thinking about discipleship, taking people along with us as we go share or as we go serve, whatever it may be, we're thinking about that. As we pick up our phone and we text, man, I was just thinking about you, I was praying, here's a verse that was on my mind. We have that sort of mentality. It can't be, it can't be a, uh, a programmatic sort of thing that you just kind of do for an hour and you're done. 
And so DNA groups and what I'm going to present to us here, the, the, the vision is so much broader than just a little meeting time or a little curriculum. It's about trying to help us as a church uh, develop a culture of discipleship. And here's what I would say. Last thing on this is, listen, what I have to offer over the next few weeks, you can take it wholesale and use it. You can uh, change this or that. You don't like that. That didn't seem right. You can tailor make it to fit your needs or you can discard it entirely. I really don't care. The one thing that I care about is that you are in fact doing something with Matthew 28 and that we are engaged because you will find that you are not coming alive and you are not growing in Jesus because you're not walking in the reason that you were created. Okay? Now, all that was intro. The plan for this morning, I am going to try to go a little bit easier on us here, um, but the plan for this morning, uh, really I've just got two things. The, the first is I, I want to make sure we're clear on the broader biblical theological background that kind of stands behind the vision for these groups and discipleship in general, or even calling it DNA groups and that sort of a thing. So I want to provide, and this is where I'm going to spend the majority of my time, because I think this actually sets us up to understand what discipleship even really is. You may be surprised that I'm going to go all the way back to Genesis to talk about it, but that's what we're going to do. And all of that's just going to help us make our way towards a, a definition that I'll kind of leave us with um, as we close. And we'll pick that up uh, next week and look more and more at these things. So let me be clear. Again, this is part one of what I think will be three, which means I am not going to lay out the full vision here. I'm not going to talk about some of the practicals that you may be wondering. And I'm not going to talk about how you can get involved in these sorts of things just yet. Just simply starting the conversation. All right? But... I would encourage you, even as we get going, be praying. Be praying about what your role may be, about what role God may have for you in the unrolling of, uh, or the rolling out of some of these uh, groups and things. So first, the biblical background to all of this. Um, before I can really uh, talk about the biblical background, there's, there's one step I, I want to get at first that will kind of set us up for that. Um, and that is to actually discuss DNA uh, from a biological standpoint. Make sure we're clear on what it even is. Now, I went on Wikipedia to make sure I knew what it was. Uh, I am certainly no scientist or anything like that. Uh, but here's what I got at a cursory level. just want to make sure I have this clear. Uh, DNA is the carrier of genetic information in your body. It's transferred to you from your parents. It is the reason why uh, you kind of, it, it helps determine many of your body's biological, physical characteristics. It's the reason why you kind of are the way that you are, look the way that you look, that sort of thing. Your DNA transferred from parents coming to you. It carries your genetic information. That's how DNA works. Now, to illustrate this, um, this, is, this is the sort of thing that you see play out every time a newborn baby is brought home from the hospital, right? Some of you guys are about to have babies. Some of you guys just had babies. Uh, I've certainly had my fair share. But when you, when you bring a, a newborn baby home from the hospital, if you're new to this whole thing, here's what happens. Just fill you in. All of a sudden, everybody catches wind of this. Uh, all your friends, family, whatever, and they're very excited. 
and they start figuring out ways that they could show up at your house. And so they'll bring gifts, they'll bring food, they'll act like they care about you, but really they just want to see your baby. And they come in, where's the baby? Where's the, she's sleeping. Oh, I can wait, I can wait. And when, uh, when, you bring, when you bring your newborn baby out and they get to hold or whatever it is, I mean, after kind of, you know, the baby talk and all of that, here's one of the first things that will happen. They'll start to try to identify who the baby looks like, right? Oh, look at this. She has her, she has her daddy's eyes. She has her mommy's hair. She has Aunt Betsy's double chin. Oh, poor her, you know, whatever. You know, that sort of a thing is going to happen when you bring a newborn baby home from the hospital. Because she shares her parents' DNA, she's going to look like her parents. Now, I've had three, and uh, the verdict, I think, is out um, in many ways. Um, Chloe looks more like the Weber side of the family. Bella looks more like the Mossbacher, my, my wife's side of the family. Uh, Levi is somewhere in the middle. Uh, we're not quite sure. He's got kind of a good blend of both. But I, I suppose the reason I'm saying all of this is because um, regardless of how you parse out the traits, regardless of what people decide, you know, your baby looks like or doesn't look like, one thing is sure, because she shares your DNA, she will look like part of the family. She will look like you in some way. She has your genes. And therefore, it's going to affect the way that she looks. It's going to affect her image. Now, this understanding of DNA sets us up to talk about the biblical background to this idea of DNA groups. Um, I love talking about my kids, but I'm not just trying to be random here. There's a reason for it. I want you to see this. I wonder if you realize that the entire story of Scripture can be told, in one sense at least, from the perspective of genetics. Now, I'm going to walk us through the four chapters of the biblical storyline, if you will, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I'm going to show you how this plays out because discipleship finds itself square in the middle of this. And this is going to set us up to understand what DNA groups really are all about, what we're after with these things, what we're after with this thing called discipleship and making disciples. So I want you to see this. I wanted to spend time on it. Chapter number one in the biblical storyline, creation. Humanity, we learn in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, was originally created in the image of God. Now, I feel like I've talked about this for the past couple of weeks or so. I, I remember at least bringing up the discussion. Uh, but perhaps some of you, hopefully, remember uh, this idea of being created. You and I, created in the image of God, is in fact familial. Uh, created to be created as God's children. We are in his family. You remember that in Luke's genealogy, he actually says Adam was the son of God. Or you remember that Paul, when he's talking to the Athenians, Gentiles, says that you are in fact offspring of God. To be created in the image of God is to, in essence, be a part of his family. It's, you could say, to use the language that I'm after, it's to share his DNA. Something of his Genetics, something of his DNA shared with humanity. Now, to say uh, to maybe about, about a kid or something that, man, that, that boy is the spinning image of his father, is kind of getting at 
what we're kind of talking about here with this idea of being created in God's image. I think that's related. This idea, oh, he's a spitting image. Wow, looks just like him. I think that's something like what it means to be created in the image of God. We, we get all confused with our theological terms, but really it just means we look like our Father. We were created to reflect and to look like Him. If you're not uh, buying this yet, let me show you a few things. I wonder if you've noticed in the creation narrative how it plays out, uh, and you see this very thing kind of fleshed out in more detail. Genesis 1, God is naming and ordering His creation, right? Let there be, let there be, go hither, go thither, whatever the word is. You know, do what I say. He's naming and ordering. There's light, there's stars, there's whatever. He's naming it and he's ordering it, organizing the, the, the cosmos. And then he creates man. And what does he have Adam do, Genesis 2? He brings animals to him and he lets Adam name. Let's Adam kind of organize and set order and understand what's going on. He brings his bride to him, and Adam names Eve. But the idea is imaging the one we just saw in Genesis 1. There's, there's this close connection between God and man, that God is wanting to share something of his activity, something of who he is, what he's like with us, and we're to reflect that in the world. But we could go on. Uh, Genesis 1, God is the one who is fruitful and multiplying and filling his creation with all manner of plants and animals and life. He creates the various realms and then he fills the realms. But then, as we keep reading and he creates man in his image, what does he ask man and woman to do? Verse 28, we see that he goes on to tell them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, go, why didn't you just do it? My goodness, you said the word and it's done. Why? Because he wants us to image him. He wants us to look like him. He wants us to, to, to showcase his glory in all the world. He wants us to be part of his family. Or we could give you one more here, but we could go even further than that. I'll stop at this one. Genesis 1, God is clearly portrayed as the supreme king and ruler over all, right? I mean, nothing disobeys. Everything just goes as he says. He is the supreme king and ruler over all. There is no question about that. And then he creates man, and it's very interesting. What does he ask man to do? Apart from be fruitful, fill, multiply, you know, whatever. He also says, listen, I want you to subdue the earth and have dominion on it. Well, those sound like king words. Those sound like authority, ruler sort of words. And the, if that's what you're feeling, then you're right. We were created to rule like God, not as God but under Him and, 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 and like Him in a way that brings life and, and, and light and love. See, order and authority are not bad things. They just, in the, it, when our hearts twisted, it went wrong. But they can be wonderful things. God is our authority and He is supremely wonderful. Caring and loving and giving life and light. And he created us to do the same, to image him, to be his spitting image, to be like a mirror reflecting him in all the world. In other words, again, we had something of our dad's DNA. 
But chapter 2, in the biblical storyline, and you know it well, because we live in it every day, the fall. With this now in view, the fall of Genesis 3 can be understood as a sort of genetic mutation. It can be understood as something kind of going wrong in the very heart and nature of man. As we turn on God, our creator, maker, our father, something goes off in the very essence of our nature. There's, there's a deformity. There's a genetic mutation, you could say. It's, it's wrong now inside of us. At the tree of testing, verse 6 of Genesis 3, the image of God and man was not fully lost, but it was most certainly marred. It was most certainly marred. We still looked something like our maker, but now with severe deformities. Now like a mirror broken. We still reflect him a little bit in the world, but it's kind of in fragments and flashes. Kind of like those carnival mirrors where you kind of see what God is like. You get a sense that something is there and yet it's broken at the same time. And you're kind of confused by it. That's what we are now by nature because of sin and the fall. We are something, you could even say, a little less than human. The gospel at the end of the day is a rehumanizing movement. It's, it's, it's redeeming fallen man and saying, let's make them fully human again as God designed. In the fall, we become something less than human, something less than we were created to be. We are selfish, rebellious, sinful, divided, confused, broken. Now let me play this out for you further. We still name things, don't we? We still use our words to name things. Only now, a lot of times, I mean, just listen to my kids, look at how they talk about, the, you know, you're this, you're stupid, you, whatever. And we use our words now and our names to cut people down. Not to elevate or like, like uh, Adam rejoicing over his bride Eve, using his words to bless. Now our names tear down. We still bear fruit and multiply and fill the earth, but now we fill it with sin and division and all manner of violence rather than righteousness and shalom. Look at the state of the world we live in, but it was really no different back uh, even after the fall. Genesis 6, 5, God looks at creation. He says, oh my goodness, man's heart is only evil continually. And they're filling the earth with this stuff. What are we going to do? We still subdue and have dominion, but sadly it is usually with self-centered intent. You know, the surveys bear this out when they say that when people are asked, you know, what's one of the big problems in the world? Um, among, among them are, you know, things like poverty or things like um, global warming or environmental issues, but, but always up there somewhere is the idea of corruption. The idea that those in power can't be trusted. The idea that there is something in the heart of man that now they subdue and they have dominion, but they do it with selfish intent. They do it with a view to themselves. (laughs) I saw this play out in my house just the other day when Jerry and Dee were there. (laughs) It was actually quite funny. So uh, we had Jerry and Dee over for dinner and uh, my kids were playing in the yard and uh, we got out there and... um, See, see them doing something really strange. Okay, so my girls have filled the wagon that we have with 
all sorts of different stuff. I mean, there's like, there's wood, there's rocks, there's toys, there's pillows, there's, there's like garden tools. And this, this thing's mounted up high. And then they got Levi pulling it like this. And he, he's pulling it. And they're, they're barking orders at him. Like, go fast, you know, this sort of thing. And I'm looking, I'm going, I walk up, I'm like, what in the world is going on? You want to know the answer? I mean, this is so funny. They're training him. This is, what, this is what they told me. We're training him so that he can be strong enough someday to pull us around wherever we want to go. And I said, that's ingenious, but it's also wicked, right? That is, now, I'm joking, right? But this is, this is subduing the earth and having dominion gone wrong. You with me on that? But it's in us from the very beginning. How can I use what little authority I have? Okay, I can't manipulate mom and dad, but I can my little brother. You know? That's what we do, and it gets increasingly less humorous the older we get. It comes out in increasingly more distasteful, horrifying ways. Sadly, by nature, we look a lot less like God now and a lot more like the devil. And remember, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and he says, you guys, you guys look just like your father, the devil. Or you remember Ephesians 2, Paul says, we're all children of wrath, just like, just like the rest of mankind, following the prince of the power of the air. He's our daddy. We look a lot like him in our, be the way we abuse, the way we manipulate, the way we divide, the way we... <clears throat> Something's off. We need to be, in other words, renewed in the image of our Father. We need, we need genetic rewiring. We need image renewal. We need uh, God to come into the mess we have made and help us. In chapter 3 of the biblical storyline, Redemption, what we see is that Jesus uh, is going to come in uh, and do just that. He's going to come in and make a way for us to be renewed in the image we had once marred. I love what Bonhoeffer says concerning our restoration into God's image. Uh, This is what he writes in The Cost of Discipleship. There is only one way to achieve this purpose, renewal in God's image, and that is for God, out of sheer mercy, to assume the image and form of fallen man. As man can no longer be like the image of God, God must become like the image of man. Did you hear that? I mean, we're twisted, messed up. We chose this. We wandered. We're here. God could have left us. He doesn't. He says, listen, the only way for me to renew you in my image is for me to come down and take on yours. The image of fallen and sinful man and go to the cross with it, right? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, whom Paul calls in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, whom the author of Hebrews describes as uh, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. This Jesus, this Son, the true eternal Son, the one who literally is the spitting image of His Father, comes down. Perfect Son, perfect child, 
perfect image, reflecting without distortion the glory of his Father into a fallen world in the way that he walked, the way that he talked, the way that he served, the way that he led, the way that he lived, the way that he died. Here's the dark, sinister reality. When he comes down as the eternal image of God and he reflects this light to us in his person and his work, what we see, what we see, we cannot stand. We watch people who, in view of the pure holiness, the brightness of God, his beauty, his glory reflected from Jesus, they detest it. They can't stand it. They have to snuff it out. Just as we marred the image of God when it was put on us at first in Eden, so when it came to us in the person of Jesus, we tried yet once more to mar it. Did you hear that? With our lashes, with our chains, with our thorns, Jesus was ravaged beyond recognition. The point is here, get the image of God out of my face and out of the cosmos. I don't want to see it. It just exposes stuff that's wrong in me that I don't want to talk about, or whatever it may be. I don't want to go there. When we drove those nails into His hands on the cross, it's as if we were taking hammer to mirror. We were shattering the perfect image of God. We left Him hanging on a stick in the dark in shards. Broken shards. Now, here's the amazing thing. At Calvary, in our arrogance, we thought we were doing away with the image of God once and for all. We don't want to live under Him. We don't want to see Him. We don't want to look like Him. I want to be selfless and self-serving, you know, or self-sacrificing and, and loving. I want me. I don't want to see him anymore. We thought we were doing away with it. But in love, what God was doing at the cross, he was making a way for us to be renewed in that image forevermore. We thought we were getting rid of it. He was making us for us a way to be renewed in it. That's what happens. He goes into the ground three days later. When he rises from the dead, he is opening a door for us, a new door of possibility. On the cross, Paul says it, Romans 8, 3, he becomes the image and likeness of sinful flesh and was condemned. Well, when he rises, listen, that sin was done away with. That sin, the, the, the wrath was absorbed in him. It was paid. And when he rises victorious over sin and grave, now he has this offer for humanity. Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, when he says this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, namely Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, namely Jesus. There's a fallen, a broken, a marred image that we inherit in Adam and our broken, fallen nature, but then in Christ we can start to look more like our Father, our Creator, our Redeemer again. But, this whole thing is a process. I mean, does anybody feel like Right now, they say, look at me, and you'll see Jesus in HD all the time. Here he is, being reflected. Anybody feel like they get? No. 
It's a process. While um, growing up into the, or while being conformed into the image of, of Christ is ultimately our destiny, secured by Jesus in the gospel. It is by no means automatic. There are these indications we get in the scriptures that we are kind of taking part in this in one way or another. But let me kind of walk you through what we see uh, happening. Um, And I'll get to a few texts that show this in more detail. We know that first we're born again. I mean, have you ever wondered why we use born again language? What does that mean? It's being born into a family. I talked about a newborn coming home from the hospital looking like their dad. What's being born again? It's being born into the family and looking now like your dad. There's something new. There's something happening in your nature, in your very essence. It's being renewed. Renewed in God's image. We're born again in Him. And then all at once we're told we see the kingdom. John 3 talks about this. We see the kingdom and we see the king. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. When we are born again, our eyes are opened to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see the image clearly. And here's the amazing thing. For the person who's been born again by the Spirit from above, the sighting of that image now is no longer detestable. It's delightful. It's desirable. Jesus, who maybe once was a threat to you and your little kingdom, now becomes the most beautiful thing. Now you find yourself, strangely enough, uh, not just wanting to see more and more of it, but wanting to look more and more like it. I want to look more like him. I want to reflect him. And Paul tells us that as we press in, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we actually will see more of this. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I mean, you're getting this, right? We lost the image we were created in the image. We lost the image. Jesus came back. And what does he say? No, I'm going to renew you in this image. That's the point. And we're going to be transformed as we see him, delight in him, follow him, learn from him. We will be transformed into that image from one degree of glory to the next. We'll start to look like our dad. But Paul in Colossians 3, 5 through 10 gets a little bit more specific for us. Because it still sounds like pie in the sky, kind of nice. And then he starts to show us, wow, there are things that we are going to have to do. There's nitty-gritty war that takes place. It's not just like we come to church, we sing some songs, and we go home shining. Maybe. Sometimes that happens. But a lot of times, uh, there's this call for us to participate in this renewal as we rely on Jesus and we look towards Him and, 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 and trust in Him and repent and, and, and reroute ourselves in Him. This is what Colossians 3, 5 through 10 says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He's talking to believers again. He's talking to disciples who are in the process of being renewed. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. It once was our way of life. And now it's still kind of this thing that clings and tempts and calls. 
We were once living in them, but now there's a new way. And he's calling us into that. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's why I read the whole thing. He's saying you are being renewed and part of that is this repentance of the sin that still remains and this, this rerouting in your identity that is now in Jesus and the work that He's accomplished, His love for you, His forgiveness, and His power to live a new life. We're born again. We see Him. We delight in Him. We follow Him. We put off old stuff. He helps us. We start to put on new stuff that we learn from Him and His ways. And we start to look more and more like Him. We are renewed day by day in that image. Stone hearts start to beat again. The broken mirror is brought to reflect God's light once more. You want to know what people should be saying about yours in my life? Man, they look like their father. They have his eyes. You think about that? That when you treat another human being at a coffee shop or whatever as, as, as a human being made in God's image and you care about their story, you have your father's eyes. You're not just an obstacle in the way between me and my caffeine. I, I want to know you. I care about you. I had the barista at Starbucks here say that to me. That I was like, that's so amazing. She said, well, what is that? I told you my whole life story. I feel like you care. But you realize you have your father's eyes. You have your father's smile. You care about. You have your father's tears as you weep over their pain. You have your father's hands as you reach out to hug, or or, or you 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 get you go low to serve. You have your father's knees as you intercede, you pray and you plead, right? I think it was John who said that last week, right? The camel knees, or I don't remember what he said. Guy praying so much that the calluses. I mean. But you know what I mean? Like you have that. You start to look like your dad because you're following after Jesus and being renewed in his image. Now, chapter four, the idea of restoration just takes us to the last day and I'll just read one verse for that because what we see is that God, uh, what, he prom- what he began in Christ, he promises to finish. First John 3, 2. Listen to this, beloved. We are God's children now and what we will be. This is your children, image. Keep that in your mind, children. Now, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Did you see how that just wraps it all up? We're his kids. We're looking at Jesus. We're going to be like him. We're going, to, we're going to be renewed in his image. Fully and holy. That's why Paul would say, you'll be glorified. You go, what in the world is that? It means looking like Jesus. Fully, thoroughly, through and through. Now, at this point, heading number two, the definition. At this point, you may be wondering, what in the world does all of this have to do with discipleship and DNA groups? Well, I'm glad you asked, because in a word, everything. Everything. Uh, discipleship to Jesus is the way we are slowly renewed in His image. If renewal in the Father's image is the end, 
of our salvation is the end of God putting His hand on us and bringing us into His Son. Discipleship to Jesus is the means. That's what I want you to see. That's what I want you to get. In fact, when you think about it, as Jesus sets out to make disciples in the Gospels, what is He doing? He's calling people out of darkness... He's calling people away from their their broken and sinful uh, ways of life out there in the realm of death that they have chosen and formed for themselves. He's calling them out of that to what? To follow Him, to learn from Him, to grow to love Him, receive His love for them, and then to look more and more like Him. So we watch that happen from start to finish as He brings them in and teaches them more about Himself and then slowly sends them out to do the things that He's been doing. He's renewing them in His, our Father's image. That is what discipleship is. This is why, by the way, the last chapter of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book that I just quoted from, The Cost of Discipleship, the last chapter is entitled, The Image of Christ. It's a book on discipleship. The last chapter is, The Image of Christ. Let that sink in, because he's right on. He gets that the ultimate aim of discipleship to Jesus is renewal in the image of Jesus. That's the point. That's where it is going. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? What's the ultimate end of our salvation? And being united to Jesus. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the point. That's what's going on. Discipleship is the means to renewal, rewiring of our DNA, conformity to God's image as the end. So again, what is all that I just did about this image and looking like, what does that have to do with this object? Everything. Everything. Now, we're calling these discipleship groups at Mercy Hill uh, DNA groups for two simple reasons. And I've used this acronym before because it guides me in a lot of things, not just how to do discipleship, but just how to do Bible studies, how to do home groups, how to preach. But let me bring it in here. Uh, Why call these groups DNA groups? Well, two reasons. One, it keeps the ultimate goal of discipleship before us at all times. You're not allowed to kind of forget what's the point. When the group is called a DNA group, it keeps in your face. The idea is to rewire my DNA. The, 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 the goal is to get us looking like Jesus, not, not strong-arming us into obedience. We'll talk about that later. But, but transformation from, from at the molecular level, you could say, it, by the Spirit, at the deepest parts of our being, finding its way you know, out into every aspect of our lives. So it keeps the goal ever before us, renewal in our Father's image. It's not just a time to hang out and chat. That's great. That's part of it, for sure. But we're going somewhere. We are journeying towards Jesus. We're being renewed. Now, the second thing I'd say is that um, more than merely keeping this goal before us, it also actually outlines the steps involved in accomplishing it. So here is where DNA, I don't actually even know what it stands for, biology, does anybody know? My man. For us, DNA does, no, does not mean deoxynucleic acid anymore. Was that, did I get that right? <laughs> for us, it means discovering and nurturing and applying Christ. I'll flesh that out next time. 
But those are the basic steps involved in accomplishing that end of conformity to his image. So DNA groups keep before us the goal. Uh, they, they, they outline for us the steps involved in discipleship uh, in general. Uh, let me at least um, uh, bring this here to a close by giving you the definition in full for these groups. DNA groups are smaller groups of committed people who meet on a consistent basis to discover, nurture, and apply Christ together until he is all in all. Again, that's what we'll flesh out next time a little bit more. But for this morning, let me wrap it up by leaving you with two simple questions to pray, ponder, consider. One, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you still off living in the fall, kind of twisted off in your own versions of naming and ruling and, and filling and multiplying, but it's just creating chaos? At least you're the king of your own kingdom, but it's a disaster. Take up the mantle of discipleship. Lay down your arms and, 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 and follow Jesus in the way of truly being human. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you letting him put you back together? Second question, if you are, one of the ways he puts you back together and renews you in his image is by making you others-centered, just like he was. One of the ways he's going to put you back together as a disciple is by actually sending you out in love to make other disciples of Jesus, to engage others in the journey behind him and in conformity to his image. So again, let me ask you, if you are a disciple of Jesus, are you busy making disciples of Jesus, pouring your life out to help others along in their journey towards him? Or are you busy with something else? I mean, absolutely, be busy with work, be busy with family, but in it all, be busy with this call. See your coworkers in a different light. See your grocery run in a different light. In light of this mission, God wants to give you so much more meaning and purpose to your life than you even know. It's not about the weekend. It's not about the summer vacation. It's about this. I want this church to be about this together. Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you that you are patient with us. Man, one of the things that we learn from the fact that this is a process and that we are slowly being renewed day by day in your image is that you are in fact patient. If I could snap my fingers and, and make my kids do their chores without me having to say it ten times, I think I'd do that. One of the things that's highlighted for us is that you're patient with us along the way that you want us to learn. You don't just want us to be robots that are automatically transformed. You want us to learn dependence and relationship with you and repentance and faith and reliance on you. And you're so patient with us in Jesus. Thank you that you have paid the ultimate cost for our rebellion. Thank you that the only true eternal image of God was marred beyond recognition, took on the image and likeness of sinful flesh and was condemned in our place. Thank you that you didn't take our no as the final answer as we tried to get you out of your universe. But you came back with a resounding yes. You moved towards us in love and you're putting us back together. Lord, thank you. There's no one like you and yet we desperately want to be. <laughs> Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen.